Exciting episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the Whiskey Drinking Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> I'm a little toasted, but that's okay. He likes to smash that bottle down down when he's done with it. Forget <laughs> trash cans and recycle bins. Not this guy. <laughs> if you if you can't tell, I'm making a veiled reference to the Justice League. I hesitate to call it a trailer, but I guess maybe sizzle reel. I guess is what you call those things. I, I, yeah, I don't. A sizzle reel, I think, is things that has like behind the scenes stuff. So it's it's, but it's not quite a trailer either. Yeah, it's sort of a weird little mix. If you haven't seen it, folks, you're, you're obviously living in a cave under a rock. Go out, Google San Diego Comic Con Justice League trailer, and enjoy two and a half minutes or so of footage from the upcoming Justice League movie, including totally badass Aquaman. And I'm looking forward to it. Rob, you've obviously seen it. Uh, you want to share a couple of quick thoughts for the group? Um, yeah. I mean, I first of all, I was pretty shocked that they did it. I had no, we had no new inkling that that was coming. And I clearly, they're trying to allay some fears uh, because this this trailer had a lot of humor in it, yep. which I liked. Uh, it had a lot of Aquaman in it, which I also liked. <laughs> uh, apparently, that shot of him with the water is not CGI. It's it's that's real. I thought it looked real, so it looked cool. It looked um, good. I don't want to see Aquaman littering, but we'll we'll worry about that <laughs> as it goes on. Um, no, I, I thought it I thought it looked interesting. I did. I mean, we, we've been having this discussion a little bit over on uh, Film and Water, where we did uh, me and Chris and Cindy and Ryan Daly all did a, a an episode about that trailer and the Wonder Woman trailer. Woo-hoo. And it's been, we've been having comments back and forth on the site, FireWaterPodcast.com, where you know people are like, "Oh, is this the Aquaman you want?" And I'm like, "No, it's not really the Aquaman I want, but this is the Aquaman they're doing." So within that context. Am I enjoying what I'm seeing? Yeah, it looks cool. I like the idea that Aquaman's going to be the holdout. Yeah. Uh, they're clearly talking about him with the scene of, like, you know, more or less he's 
interested. More, more, more or less, more or less. Well, then he's not interested, right? Yeah, yeah, he said that. Yeah. So I like that, you know, and we've heard that Mira's going to be in it, Volko's going to be in it. I mean, this, gonna, this movie's going to have a lot of Aquaman stuff in it, which is super exciting. And, you know, again, you have to, sometimes you have to just sit back and think, I'm seeing Aquaman in a movie. Yeah, <laughs> you know, not that long ago, that would have been completely ridiculous. Well, I think he looks great. They're definitely going for the total badass thing. I, I was going. Someone was going on about that also as well. Uh, one of the folks who listened to the show was talking about the the issue with smashing the bottle and how we felt about it and everything. And I decided that they're really just trying to show that Aquaman's a badass and the smashing of the bottles to get those Kid Rock listeners, you know, on board. I'm pretty sure is what that's all about. And that's fine because you know what? I want some version of Aquaman to be everybody's Aquaman. And if this is the one that the general populace gloms onto, that's fine. I mean, he's cool. Jason Momoa is totally awesome. And you're right, that scene with the waves crashing over him, so good. Oh, I can't wait. And I've been a big holdout on this whole Barry Allen thing because I love the Flash TV show so much. But seeing this kid being rather funny, and I like the way he delivers his lines. I was like, okay, I can I can actually get on board with this interpretation of Barry Allen. I think I'm going to enjoy this. Yeah, I like that. The whole Ezra Miller, I believe, is yeah. the name of the guy. And I like the whole... Can I keep this? The batarang thing? I thought that was cool. I need friends. Yeah, yeah. it was very clever. So, um, Well, I guess, you know, real quick, folks, we talked about this in the last episode as well, but just worth mentioning here, more Justice League came out of San Diego Comic-Con with the Justice League action trailer. We talked about it last episode, but Firestorm appears to play a, a major role, at least in the trailer. He gets the best gags. He shows up in the trailer. We see Professor Stein. I'm over the moon. Go Google that trailer as well. You know, I kind of got this weird sense, like, you know, Marvel, if you look at Marvel and DC this year, Civil War was huge, right? Massive. And Batman v Superman is considered kind of a flop. I don't want to argue about flop, it. Not a flop, not a well, flop, but not a disappointment. The movie, it, the movie will end up making its money back, but it, it needed to do more than that. It needed to be a cash cow, and it is not a cash cow. But it, right, it, well, yeah. where I was going was just the articles I've read, and I don't want to argue about it, folks. I'm not making a statement, but just that it didn't make the billion dollars, you know, in the theaters. And it just that, that was a whole hubbub, and like you said, it didn't make the money it was supposed to. That Where I'm going with this is, is that it's kind of surprising that Marvel Civil War is sort of a darling, and BVS has kind of had a, a rough time of it. And yet it seems, coming out of uh, San Diego Comic-Con, DC seems like actually the live-action darling. And Marvel's, oh, they've got stuff out there. Sure, they've got the Luke Cage, they've got the Doctor Strange. But everyone's talking about the, the DC trailers. And I don't know whether Suicide Squad has turned this around for people or just the trailers are that good or what, but it was very encouraging to see DC as the media darling at San Diego. People want to love a Justice League movie. They want to, and I think they're screaming for it. And every time they see something that looks even kind of cool, they get excited all over again, even though... Some of us have felt a little burned after the last thing, but we still are holding out hope. And I, I'm looking forward to Wonder Woman big time. Well, by the way, that JLA shot that they released of the team, Wonder Woman is dead square in the center. Yep. Yep. And I think they heard loud and clear that she was probably one of the best parts of BVS. And uh, they're, they're making her an important part of the show, which I'm glad. She deserves mm-hmm. it. So, yep. You know, my wife watched the Wonder Woman trailer and the JLA trailer, and she said, wow. The, the girl, she didn't know any names, but she's like, the girl they cast for Wonder Woman, she is beautiful and badass at the same time. <laughs> they did a great job. I'm like, my wife's a normal person. If she can get on board with this, anybody can. So, um, Then a couple quick mentions of Legends of Tomorrow. Uh, also, they announced there's a new Legends of Tomorrow Firestorm action figure coming out. So this is going to be the uh, 
Jack's version of Firestorm in in the uh, what I call the motorcycle riding costume, and uh, that that should be out. I don't I don't remember the dates on that, but they I've seen the pictures of it. It looks pretty cool, so I'm gonna have to get myself one of those. And then finally, the the Legends of Tomorrow comic. Um, it appears that with issue six, we're, we're going to talk about issue five today, but after after issue six, it appears it will be over. Now, we don't have, as Rob asked me off air, and I just left that dramatic pause there for him to ask, and he didn't bother. You know, is that confirmed? No, it's not confirmed. However, I was just letting you talk. <laughs> that's so unusual. Uh, if you look in the previews magazine that Diamond puts out, you know, issue six was solicited and comes out next month. But no seven and no eight have been solicited. There's no final issue announcement. I think DC's just just like we said from the beginning. They're trying to let the miniseries they originally booked run out. They don't want to advertise it as, la- as final issue or a miniseries because they know what that does to books. I read a whole article the other day. It's interesting how Marvel doesn't do ongoing series anymore. They just do limited series, but they call them ongoing series, and they just end it whenever they have a creative change or they reach a year or so, which is. Honestly, what's going on with the industry? So I think they're following the same model here with Legends Tomorrow. It's like, oh, we'll just end it at six, and we'll just say that's that. But we won't tell anybody because it'll hurt sales. Anyway, all right, anything else we got to talk about? Uh, no, I think we're good to go. Why don't we thank our sponsors? Folks, this episode of the Fire & Water Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, Rob? Uh, over the weekend, I read uh, one of those classic um, Fireside books that Marvel put out in the 70s. It was mm. a giant Incredible Hulk volume. Mm. And it reprints one of the stories from Tales to Astonish that Gil Kane drew. And I remember, God, those are so good. Gil, Gil Kane didn't draw Hulk long, but, man, he did some great work. So I went in and tried to find a book that features those reprints, and I did. That book in question is uh, Marvel Masterworks Incredible Hulk Trade Paperback Volume 3. features work by Stan Lee, Marie Severin, the aforementioned Gil Kane, John Buscema, Jack Kirby, and Bill Everett. It reprints Tales to Astonish numbers 80 through 101 and Incredible Hulk 102. Uh, it's 288 pages, normal price $24.99, in-stock trades price $13.74. The brief run that Gil Kane had on the Hulk is one of my is one of my favorites of the character. And it's you just he brought such a weird physicality to the Hulk that mm-hmm. I've never seen really anybody do before or since. And I just absolutely love it, even though at times Hulk is taking on real morts like Boomerang and stuff like that. But <laughs> he also runs into the Servo Surfer. He fights the Submariner, the Thor, the Mighty Thor, the Abomination. There's yeah, those some, are all morts. Wow, yeah. yeah. Well, no, I was, I was clearly <laughs> separating the line there between Boomerang and the others. But th- those are really, really fun stories. Some of my favorite Hulk stories of all time. So this book, only $13.74. That's 45% off. Super cool stuff. Marvel Masterworks, Incredible Hulk. Very nice. You know, I'm about to recommend a DC book, but folks, in the near future, which may not be for like a year, but either way, as soon as it's out, I will be promoting probably every week going forward a Marvel book, which is the John Byrne Alpha Flight Omnibus that's coming out for Marvel. Oh boy. It's got everything. The whole run of Alpha Flight by John Byrne. I can't wait. Just read about it. <laughs> I don't think it's due out until like January or something, but I'm totally getting that thing. Anyway, I'm going to talk about something a little more timely. Folks, as you hear this, you're probably getting ready, just like the rest of us, for the Suicide Squad movie because it looks so good. It looks ridiculously good. It looks better than it deserves to look, uh, given the formulas and everything we heard leading up to the first trailer. But damn, that movie looks good. So, folks, I am here to tell you that if you don't own it already, you need to get Suicide Squad 
trade paperback volume one trial by fire and this is the first trade collects the first eight issues of the classic suicide squad run and secret origins number 14 written by john ostrander with art by luke mcdonald dave hunt bob lewis carl kiesel this is fantastic 232 pages and rob have you ever read the suicide squad run yeah i bought bought the book at the time i haven't read it since but it's amazing and it's one of those books that holds up uh, seeing these characters that, I mean, the movie's going to blow this thing out of the water. It's, it's going to be amazing how, I'm sorry, not blow out of the water, but it's going to blow these characters up so huge. And to see them on the page like this, folks, you've got to read it if you haven't read it. And if, and if you've already, you know what I'm talking about. Just write emails to your friends and family, tell them to read it. Anyway, it's uh, 232 pages, normally retails for $19.99. You can get it for 45% off right now, which is only $10.99. That is cheaper than your movie ticket, ladies and gentlemen. Pick up this trade paperback from InStock Trades, your best uh, online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions. Uh, we also have another sponsor. Uh, we, as we talked about last week, The Only Living Boy is back uh, for Volume 2. The Jungle Book meets Woo-hoo! the island of Dr. Moreau in the second volume of The Only Living Boy, Beyond Sea and Sky, on sale now from the award-winning authors David Gallagher and Steve Ellis. Recently nominated as one of the best comics for younger readers for the 2016 Harvey Awards, The Only Living Boy is an action-adventure series for the young and the young at heart. Captain America and Flash author Mark Wade says Paul Pope and Jack Kirby never had a chance to work together, but if they had, it would only be slightly less awesome than this. That, that quote is no less impressive, even though I've already read it twice. The Only Living Boy is ready to join the ranks of books like Bone and Amulet as one of the very best. That's from Blaster. The Only Living Boy, Beyond Sea and Sky, is on sale now. Wherever great graphic novels are sold, you can learn more at papercuts.com. And we thank The Only Living Boy for sponsoring the show. I'm still so jealous that you've read Volume 2. I have not read it yet, and I cannot wait to get my hands on it. So, awesome. Thanks again for that sponsorship. Rob, we have got a lot of comics to talk about, so we should probably get rolling here. Folks, it is our monthly review episode. We have not one Aquaman comic to talk about, not two Aquaman comics to talk about, but three Aquaman comics to talk about. Oh my gosh, and a Firestorm book. So we're going to blow through this as quickly as we can, folks. We're actually we're going to skip feedback for this episode in the interest of so many comics to talk about, and on the front end where we talked about all the movies and stuff too. So let's get right to it. Rob, take it away. Yeah, we've got Aquaman 1, 2, and 3, because now the book is bi-weekly. Oy. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the first issue, of course, came out a month and a half ago. It is The Drowning Part 1, The End of Fear by Dan Abnett, who, of course, we've heard here on the show. Brad Walker, Andrew Hennessy, and Gabe L. Tabe, I believe that is how you say it. Now, we've all heard of talking about comics plots from a 10,000-foot level. Uh, I am going to talk at them uh, from a 238,000-mile level. It basically means I'm on the moon in terms of the plot descriptions here. This is going to be very, very brief. It all takes place at Spindrift Station, uh, which is, of course, the, the, the big you know ambassador uh, embassy that the Atlantis has and is run by Mira. And it's basically uh, a meeting for the surface dwellers to come talk to the Atlanteans, meaning Aquaman, Mira, everybody's favorite Merc, some of the other ones. And there's reporters there, and it's a whole big event. Little do they know that there is a terrorist uh, snuck in as a reporter. He sets off a bomb, all the sort of crazy conflagration, and that is the cue for Black Manta to show up because he's always, you know, whenever there's trouble, Black Manta's not too far behind. He then engages, <laughs> he get Mira gets injured. Black Manta engages in a fight with Aquaman in front of all these cameras, and he basically, the issue ends with Black Manta essentially daring Aquaman to kill him because he says, I know you can't let me live and I'm not going to let you live. So this is a standoff. And he, the idea is he is going to ruin Aquaman's, 
you know, sort of fragile reputation with the service world by making everyone watch him murder Black Manta. And that's the end of the issue. Dun, dun, dun. Now, like I said, I decided that we're not going to do the heavy plot descriptions because I figure most of you listening have either read the books or you don't care a whole hell of a lot because why are you listening to an Aquaman podcast if you don't read the comics? So I'm really going to talk about the stuff that I like. Uh, right. the stuff that's, or the stuff that I didn't like, uh, conversely. Uh, I like this first issue quite a bit. Uh, I like, as I mentioned before, I really like Spindrift Station. I think that's a really great idea and a, a, a fine addition to the Aquaman universe. Uh, I like that Mira is back in her Mira costume. She's not doing the Aquawoman bit. Uh, not that I minded that other thing, but I like her here as Mira. Um, I love Bled Walker's work. I think it's very distinctive. It's very unique. I've said this before on the show. I think Aquaman needs to have a unique-looking artist. I don't think you can kind of do a standard cookie-cutter comic book art type deal and have it work. I think Aquaman needs something a little bit more visually exciting than that. And I like Brad Walker, who, of course, uh, I've interviewed on The Shrine as well. I don't mean to say, of course, that sounds snotty. But I've inter- been Extremely lucky enough. Extremely snotty. Yeah, yeah, I didn't mean Right to after you it. mentioned you had Dan Abbott on the show, yeah, too. Yeah, I didn't mean, well, you know, whatever. So anyway, I talked to Brad, <laughs> Brad Walker, and I said I like the way he's given Aquaman's costume. His uh, shirt looks like it's made of, uh, like, pebbles from the bottom of yeah. the ocean. Which was the thing Brad did specifically. His Aquaman is skinnier than the Aquaman we've seen to this point. He's not that mm-hmm. massive, bulky guy, which I like. It kind of harkens back to the Jim Apparel Aquaman, who was had a real swimmer's build. Um, I like the idea that Manta... I mean, you know, there's only so many ways you can do the Manta plot, because he just wants to kill Aquaman. So I like this idea that he is going to let the world... You know, he's going to, like, force the world into seeing Aquaman do something he doesn't want to do and figure, let the world decide and and turn its back on Aquaman. And he's going to be the, the sort of fulcrum for that, which I thought that was a neat idea. Um, I liked all the stuff about that uh, there's a point where a woman asks, like, a surface dweller asks to help out. Is there anything she can do? And Merc is like, we don't want your kind. We don't want help from your kind. Which I like that. Which, I like- which is wild because she just saved Mera. After that moment. Right, right. I like that idea. I think that's cool. That's like something you can go through in several issues of old, you know, develop that plot line. So I like the first issue quite a bit. I really did. I thought it was a really good start. A lot of interesting tidbits I've got. Like, you know, we talked a couple episodes ago about how Amnesty Bay, there was some confusion whether it was in Maine or uh, Massachusetts. Well, it seems like it's been decided now. It's going to be Massachusetts because yep. all these issues reference it in Massachusetts. Um, uh, as far as black man appearing... Uh, I have to say, yay, uh, again, okay, but that's okay. I, th- I thought he was used well. It just it was when I found out it was Black Man in the first issue, I was like, seriously? Oh, my gosh. But they used him to a good effect. I Actually, uh, when we get to issue two, I'll, I'll talk about how much I really like the way they use him in that issue. The, you talked about the art. The art is great. I, I love the coloring. I don't know if you really took a chance to look at the coloring in issue number one, but just so many little things. I mean, the colorist went as far as really highlighting cheekbones and hair, and it's not distracting. It's subtle, and it's really well done. I mean, they really took advantage of the computerized coloring without going overboard, but really putting a lot of de- detail in it. That made me very happy. Uh, you saw your boy Salty. That was fantastic. Yes, yeah, Salty. I was happy to see Salty. For those of you who don't know, who may be newer to the show, uh, Rob had a hand in naming the dog uh, in, in Aquaman. We ran a the shrine did. I won't take credit. We ran a contest, and Salty won, and Jeff John saw that and named the, named the dog Salty. So we, we've had our little bit for, to, to add to the Aquaman mythos. Well, I'll take credit because the contest was my idea, so I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take credit for it. Fair enough. 
Uh, I, I like the introduction of Lieutenant Joanna Stubbs. I hope she sticks around. She's the one that offered help. She's the one that saved Mara. I really hope they keep that character around. I like seeing you know a Brit, a, a Royal Navy, British you know officer who's helping out, who just becomes friends with them just by happenstance. I thought that was really cool. I was I, I liked all the little characters. Dan Abnett has a real good way of like introducing little bit parts in just a couple of panels, and you you care about the character almost instantly. Like Sark, Sark was the Atlantean. Like guardman, doorman, whatever you want to say, mm-hmm. he was very likable instantly. They did a really nice job establishing him, and then when Black Manta kills him, it's like, oh, I was just liking that guy. And I thought the Ray Delane thing was a uh, was a good feint. In fact, I, I I went back later to one of those anagram generators online to see if Ray Delane was like some anagram. I was supposed to know, like, is that Black Manta? No, there's no B. Is that what is that? It's it's nothing. Uh, but I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. So, mm. Mara. You talked about the art. I mean, she's smoking hot. Obviously, she looks great. I really like this habit they're seeing, that they're forming in Aquaman, showing her in her underwear or her pajamas. I'm, I, power to them, guys. Keep it up. Now, did you notice her costume, her green costume? They've done something different in this with uh, her, and I noticed it here, and you'll see it again, and I think in issue three. The green cloth, it's like it's almost like wraps now. It's like strips of cloth that have been wrapped horizontally around her. It's like it's composed that way. You have any idea? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you... You see what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, Brad Walker talked about that. They made these sort of tweaks to the costume, both costumes. He, I mean, they did put some thought behind it of making it, you know, get, giving some changes to it. It's cool. I like it. It's a very interesting look. I was. It took me a while to sort of put it together, and because you know, usually she's got the sparkly green with the weird quagmire squiggles and stuff. But uh, I think it, it worked really nicely. It was very cool, and I thought it was also very clever in, from a story perspective how. You know you need to set up Aquaman and Black Mana. That's where the fight needs to happen. Mera is critical to the story, but you really need Aquaman and Black Mana to fight. So having Mera have to create that hard water wall to save the, the, the surface dwellers is a great way to use her as a utility character, helping people, and yet you still get to have Aquaman and Black Mana square up. I thought that was very cleverly done. And uh, finally, is is it just me, or do you hear the black man of voice from Challenge of the Super Friends in your head when he oh, talks? Oh, sure, yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's no about that. Okay. <laughs> That's all I had on issue one. I liked it. It was a very, it was very, I mean, there's only so many Aquaman number one issues you're going to read in your life. More than Firestorm, apparently. But um, <laughs> but I thought it was very good. Yeah, it was a good start to the series. Ab- absolutely. Yep. So let's move on to Aquaman Part 2, number 2, which is The Drowning Part 2, Full Circle. This is, of course, again by Dan Abnett. But the art is by Scott Eaton, Wayne Foucher, and the colorist, again, is Gabe Eltabe. Now, this is mostly uh, one big fight as uh, Aquaman and Manta just knock the crap out of each other for the most of the book. And then right at the point where uh, Manta is basically has the opportunity to be killed by Aquaman, he's got the trident, Aquaman refuses to. And he basically says, I'm not going to kill you, and you're never going to kill me. And this, you know, basically you need to, I, I, yes, I killed your father, but, uh, you know, like, you're never going to bring him back, and I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to sink to your level. So, basically, you've lost, and you need to have something else in your life than just this revenge. And that basically takes the wind out of Manta's sails uh, in, a, in, a tw- in, in sort of a twist that I didn't expect, and I'll get into that in a second. So, Manta gets carted off to prison, of course, but then while he's on the way, his armored vehicle is attacked, and a bunch of uh, weirdly dressed or supervillainy guys uh, a woman and these two uh, two uh, masked goons uh, kidnap him, and it ends with uh, the woman saying, "We could be friends. We have mutual interests. Let's find out." And that's the end of the issue. As Manta is, of course, dragged 
away from uh, the, the proper authorities and is going to be with these bad guys. We have to find out what that's all about. And that's basically the issue too. Yep. I I really enjoyed this issue quite a bit. Actually, I I don't know if I want to say I enjoyed it more than issue one, but and I know it was just a running fight. And so innately, I should be like, oh, not enough happened. But by golly, I really enjoyed it. Like I, the way the interaction between Aquaman and Black Manta, their discussion was captivating. And what you didn't specify in your recap, and maybe that's what you're getting to, which is where Aquaman spins the trident around, points it at his own heart, and gives it to Manta. Right. And says, kill me. Go ahead. Do it. Get it over with. Get rid of your rage. What do you have left when you're done? After you've killed me, what do you have left? And that's what really took the wind out of Black Man of Sales. And I, just, I was like, whoa! You know? I mean, I don't know whether Aquaman had a plan, you know, as if, like, if Manta actually did it. Or if Aquaman was willing to die just to get this over with. You know, I, I, <laughs> either way, it was really powerful. I was impressed. The thing I liked about it more than anything else was that, uh, and, and we've talked about this ad nauseum, is that, you know, everybody's writing to the trade now. It's mm-hmm. the t- totally the tail wagging the dog. And this could have been stretched out for six issues. You know, this could have been the big Manta fight. And we don't know where the rest of it's going. But, I mean, I really did not expect the whole sort of Aquaman-Manta issue to sort of get settled in issue two. And I really did like that. Now, I was not as big of a fan of the artwork by Scott Eaton and Wayne Foucher. I just – I think it's fine. Uh, but it's to me, it's it's very kind of cookie cutter comic book artwork as opposed to Brad Walker's, who I thought was very distinctive. Um, that said, though, I really did like the way Dan Abnett set us up for this long, you know, fight, which of course we've seen a million times before, and then he just stops it. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. I mean, it's like you. I mean, you really kind of can't, quote unquote, have Manta come back and try and kill him again because we've covered all this ground, and that was the thing I liked the most was just. Ending it in the second issue, I thought it was just a really nice way of subverting your expectations as opposed to this long, drawn-out battle, and we would have, you know, Aquaman, Volume 1, trade paperback, with Manta Returns. We're, <laughs> we're not getting that. He's going to move on to something else. Now, Manta, of course, his story continues to go on because of these guys have kidnapped him, and we're going to get into that more in the third issue. But that was the, my main takeaway. It was just that the fight ended way before I thought it would, and for that, I was really appreciative. I actually thought that was the Suicide Squad carting him away. Uh, because, you know, I know Black Man was part of the Suicide Squad for a while there, or the new Suicide Squad, or whatever. Um, so I thought, oh, that's what's going on here. But no, it's, it's clearly something else. Did, did you guess who that lady was going to be, or not? No. no. Okay. All right. Well, th- obviously, we'll talk about that in the third issue. I just was curious if you had figured it out or not, because I, I thought that was hilarious. Now, I didn't read the Suicide Squad issues, and I'm, I'm pretty safe bet that you probably didn't either. But I do read, we know read my- one of them. Okay, do we know much about the Black Man and development in the Suicide Squad issues? I, I don't. Okay, all right. Folks, write in, let us know, uh, because clearly neither one of us were reading it. But <laughs> I'd be curious to know if they really did develop Black Mana in those Suicide Squad issues or if he was just there to bicker like usual. So either way. Uh, fun issue, and again, I really enjoyed the fight, and I enjoyed the conversation between the two. A lot of times, you know, talky talk during fights just bores me, but I thought this was really good, really well scripted, and uh, dialogued especially. All right. So let's move on to Aquaman number three, which is The Drowning Part Three. Uh, we have, uh, again, Dan Abnett, but another set of artists, Philippe Briones. Uh, I think he actually does pencils and inks and colorist Gabe Eltiab again. Uh, Aquaman heads to Washington, D.C. to take on the most villainous group in the world, Congress. No, actually, he's dealing with something. Uh, 
actually, he's, he's there to get that guy confirmed for the Supreme Court. No. After learning that Spinger Station has been closed following Black Manta's attack, the Sea King heads to D.C. And tr- to try and fix the situation. Unfortunately, a Navy ship in the South Atlantic is attacked by the Deluge, which is that sort of splinter group from Atlantis, all in the name of uh, their, their home base. The U.S. government doesn't take too kindly to this, and they move to arrest Aquaman. Mira isn't about to just stand there and watch her beloved get caught up into chains until Arthur tells her that's exactly what he wants her to do. And this issue ends with Aquaman in cuffs looking very Supermanish from Batman versus Superman as Mira mm. just sort of stands off to the side. And that's the end of number three. It should have been, you know, the issue should have been called uh, Mr. Curry Goes to Washington. But that's just. They literally call it, I think they call it that. Well, it's called they, Part 3 Capital Crimes. Maybe they do say it. In well, there. at the Maybe. end of Issue 2, it says Mr. Kerry goes to Washington. Oh, oh, that must be where I got it from. Whoops. Sorry, Dan. Didn't mean to steal it from you. Okay. <laughs> uh, oh, and then the other, they, they continue the Black Manta plot. We found out that the name of this team is called Nemo, which is nice. And they run into, they, they um, after uh, they test Black Manta's powers by having these guys attack him, and he beats the crap out of them, this woman tells Black Manta that he's about to meet the boss. And what's her name? What is her name? I forget. I didn't write it down. What's her oh, name? It's Blackjack. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now tell the folks at home why that's significant. Blackjack is basically the only supervillain, and that's <laughs> I'm using that term loosely, uh, <laughs> that the Golden Age Aquaman ever had. He was the only recurring villain that the Golden Age Aquaman ever had. He was basically just a pirate guy and pretty hapless at that because <laughs> he was constantly grabbing Aquaman and then making him like walk the plank, which is like that's not really a threat for Aquaman. <laughs> So, <laughs> but it became like a running joke on the the Adventure Sunday column that I had when we were doing the Golden Age stories of like, oh, it's Blackjack again. Let's see how quickly Aquaman can beat the crap out of him. So, uh, yeah, when uh, when I interview Dan Abnett again, and I hope to at some point, I will have to ask him about. It. That's clearly a reference. Oh well, has, and she's even got that that headpiece that comes over her eye like an eye patch. Yeah, yeah, you figure yeah. that it's got to be that. So, yeah. And uh, by the way, she's. Also smoking hot, have to say that. Now, interesting, she works for that organization, Nemo, you said, which is N period, E period, M period, O period. And I'm sitting there scratching my head going, God, you know, Aquaman, acronym organizations, have we, have we heard of them before? So I did a little Googling. Turns out, no, I was getting them confused with Ogre. Remember? The Ogre, yeah, right. Yeah. But we know what I did find out? And stay with me on this. There was a Nemo-named villain that fought for Aquaman before. Uh, back in Aquaman number 47, this is 1998, so this would have been, what, after Peter David left, I guess? Yeah. Um, maybe that's before uh, Eric Larson, I'm not sure. Either way, Aquaman number 47. Oh, wait, 47? Uh, no, that was still Peter David. It was right at the very end. Okay, well, apparently uh, he was off of that issue. But anyway, huh. um, the villain was called Lord Nemo. Now, it was not an acronym, so it's probably completely unrelated. And he was an alien who was interested in taking the water from Earth. Whatever, who cares? But... The important thing was Aquaman number 47 from 1998, written by Dan Abda and Annie Landing. Ah. So I seriously doubt he's bringing back this foe he introduced before since it's completely unrelated. But it just was like, whoa. The the one thing I looked up and his name was attached to it. I thought that was wild. Uh, Art-wise, I thought it was okay in play. Like in some places, I really liked the facial reactions. Brion's gives Mira the last panel of the book where she looked kind of like – <laughs> yeah, know, right. Like that that's a very cartoony look, which I really like. Aquaman, his Aquaman here is real bulky, which again I, I'm not so much of a fan of, and he looks a little different than the Brad Walker version. I'm a little thrown by three different art teams in three issues. 
Uh, I know that's going to happen because now the book is shipping twice a month and you're going to run into these problems. But I do, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, eh, I wish that we could get a more consistent art team because we've been through this before. But hopefully things will, will shake out well enough that they can sort of get everybody on a decent schedule and return. Because like I said, I really like Brad Walker stuff and I hope to see him back as soon as possible. It's got to be hard producing three, uh, two issues a month. I mean, n- nothing here feels padded yet. But I gotta think with DC producing so many uh, two twice monthly books with the same writing team on a lot of them, sooner or later somebody's book's gonna get some batting. Just because there's only so much you can write, how much you know you can create, how much you can crank out in a period of time. So I, I hope Aquaman's not the book to suffer from it. Uh, Dan Abnett's a great writer, so I don't I don't necessarily think he will. But it does worry me, especially with the artists, like you said, struggling already to keep up. Now, um, there was a story point here that kind of got to me. Which was when they're, when Mara and Aquaman are on the beach and they're kind of having a romantic moment, which is nice. But she talks about how she felt the Aquawoman costume was humiliating. And that, that made me a little sad because I, I kind of dug that plot line. I thought it was very interesting in how we talked about how she was willing to play the game. You know, and she, she was getting really, really good at being diplomatic. And then here she says she's also not interested in the diplomatic position at all. So it just kind of overturned all of that previous storyline Dan had put together, which made me sad. Um, I hope that's just her talking out her butt and she's going to do a great job. And that probably wasn't the expression I should have used. No, but along those lines, by the way, did you notice in that scene she bargained for sex with her hus- with her fiancé? <laughs> I mean, he put that right in there. I was like, wow, all right. You know, Dan's writing to, to my interests. So This is a science fiction book. <laughs> So, uh, again, another one. I, another good one. I liked uh, Black Mana schooling the bad guys, which was nice. And then everything in the White House I thought was pretty cool. I liked that they were meeting with the Secretary of State and the way that whole conversation went down. I like how Aquaman was, was the level-headed one throughout the whole issue, like mm-hmm. early on in the issue when, when the violence is about to break out at the embassy. And he's the one who you know has, brings the cooler head to prevail. Mm-hmm. And he does the same thing in the White House where he says, no, no, let, let them arrest me. It's fine. It's just like, wow. This is, this is different from, you know, the, the kind of Aquaman, well, first of all, different from the Aquaman we're seeing in the movie, that's for sure. But uh, it's, I, I enjoy it. It's interesting to see. I, I'm very interested to see where this plays out. There is a moment, too, where Aquaman basically says, uh, maybe you can have Superman vouch for me since you guys seem to trust him, <laughs> which that had to be a tough pill to swallow. But, uh, I, you know, like you said, he's willing to take one for the team to sort of build up his uh, reputation again, which I appreciate. So, uh, again, curious to see where this goes. I, I hope that they can keep on it. I hope, I hope Dan Abnett says, in the book for a long time. Yep. Here's how much of a nerd I am. When he said Superman can vouch for me, I thought, no, we can't. He just met you. He only knows Aquaman of the other pair uh, from the uh, pre-Flashpoint universe. Oh, I've wasted my life. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks. Well, I think we're going to probably take a quick break. Is that fair to say? Yeah, all right. All right. We'll play a podcast promo for one of our friends. And when we come back, we're going to dive into Legends of Tomorrow, number five, the Firestorm story. Doom Patrol. 1963. Doom Patrol debut. My Greatest Adventure, issue 80. 1964. My Greatest Adventure, renamed Doom Patrol. Issue 85. 1968. Doom Patrol, destroyed. Issue 121. 1976. The new Doom Patrol. Showcase 94. 1987. Doom Patrol Volume 2 Copperberg Lytle 
1989. Morrison and Case. Issue 19. 1993. Pollack. Issue 64. 2001. Doom Patrol Volume 3. Arcudi Hewitt. 2004. Doom Patrol Volume 4. Burn. Shush. 2009. Doom Patrol Volume 5. Giffen Clark. 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, because we're waiting. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Podbean.com. Movies, TV, comics, music, pop culture affidavit has it all. It's everything random in the world of popular culture, and it's all covered by me, Tom Panneries. New episodes drop monthly at twotruefreaks.com, and be sure to check out blog posts about random pop culture topics at popcultureaffidavit.com. Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. And we're back. We're going to cover Legends of Tomorrow, number five, the Firestorm story. So, uh, getting right into this, you've got a cover by somebody whose name I can't find. Here we go. Chad Harwin and Paul Mons, uh, Mounts. So, it's the, the center focus really is the Metal Men on this one. And Metamorpho's got a giant head sort of in the background. You've got Sugar and Spike on the side and Firestorm on the left-hand side. I like the Firestorm image. The rest of it, I'm not, you know in love with, but I like the Firestorm image, how it's just sort of blurry and messy, and he's just exploding upwards. I, I like that sort of imagery. It's a little Walt Simonson-y, uh, a little loose. The The anatomy on Spike is, let's not pay too much attention to that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the best part of it is Firestorm, by far. Yeah, I dug it. I dug it a lot. So, All right, well, let's get rolling here. This is United We Fall, Part 5, written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Eduardo Panseca, inking by Rob Hunter, colorist Andrew Dollhouse, letterer Corey Breen, editor Jessica Chen, and Firestorm created by Jerry Conway and Al Milgram. Yay! <laughs> now, at a 10,000-foot level, which people should always talk about when they review comics and not mock in any way, shape, or form, at a 10,000-foot level, this is basically a subplot check-in issue, folks. Uh, we catch up with our three main characters, Ronnie Raymond, Professor Stein, and Jason Rush, and we look deeper into their private lives and get a better understanding of who they are, which, you know what, no one does subplotting for superheroes better than Jerry Conway, so I'm just thrilled with this. All right, here's the recap. After escaping the government facility last issue in Atlanta, Firestorm returns the Scooby Gang, as I'm calling them, to Walton Mills. We see Firestorm, which is composed of Ronnie Raymond and Professor Stein at this point, along with Jason Rush, Jason's dad, Alvin, Ronnie's mom, Joanne, and their teenage friend, Tanya. After the professor and Ronnie fission, everyone returns to their normal lives. Ronnie's got to make a big decision about his football opportunities, which will greatly impact his college opportunities. Jason has to prepare for his internship interview. Tanya's got a test to study for, and the parents have their lives to return to. And Professor Stein plans to further investigate Danton Black's plans. That's Multiplex. He's the one that's sort of been in the background throughout this whole miniseries. 
Then we get a nice subplot check-in. Full pages. This is I like this quite a bit. We get a full page for each of our main characters. You get a whole page of Ronnie and his mom bonding. You get a whole page of Jason and his dad bonding. And then finally you get a very sad and lonely page of Professor Stein uh, that just breaks my heart. But at the same time, it hel- still helps you. Even though there's no dialogue on that page, it still helps you get deeper into that character. So then we cut away and we find out more about Danton Black, which again is multiplex. We find out more about his plans. He still has Dr. Marla Cunningham kidnapped. And we get some very sort of human moments. They're somewhat creepy, but human. With Danton Black, he's got his mask off and he's, and he's offering Marla breakfast. And Danton explains that each version of multiplex is a different incarnation of a different probability, which sort of explains why each of the multiplexes have individualistic characteristics. Like some were saying, call me Dan, call me uh, Dan, call me Professor Black. They all had kind of their own quirks. Uh, He describes them as, and I really like this phrase, they are artifacts of the Schrodinger equation. Oh, that's, oh, I love that. That sounds like the name of a Big Bang Theory episode. (laughs) <laughs> Don't bring that show up. Anyway, uh, we also find out that multiplexes are unstable as one pops out right there. And uh, we don't, and they don't know which one is actually the real Danton Black, which is part of the reason they've got to create this quantum device, which is kind of an in, in impossibility engine, which is another fun thing to say. So then we get more subplot development with Ronnie struggling with this decision. The, the gist of it is he has been made an offer to leave his high school football team and go play for their biggest rivals. Uh, he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to douche on his team. However, if he were to go to this rival team, he could almost write his own ticket for college. So, something to think about. Even his buddy is suggesting you think about it. Now, Jason is preparing for his rescheduled interview about an internship, which he's, he's now had two different problems trying to do these interviews where he gets sick, horribly sick during the interview. And it's about this time that Jason finally figures out that his supposed friend and academic rival, Monica, is actually a total bitch. Uh, She's been spiking his caffeinated drinks that she's been giving him before each interview. Then we get... then we, then we get Subplotus Interruptus, which is Professor Stein has a lead on Dan Black, and he needs Ronnie right away. Ronnie also grabs Jason along the way because Ronnie feels it's very important that Jason is still an integral part of the Firestorm team, which Jason's delighted to hear now that he's not part of the Matrix anymore. Stein has tracked Multiplex, and he figured out that he's building a quantum field generator. Then Ronnie and the Professor fuse into Firestorm, while Jason puts on his nuclear Cerebro helmet so he can stay in contact with our hero. As Firestorm approaches Multiplex's base, there are waves of reality-altering energy pouring out. The barriers between realities are breaking down, and creatures from who knows where are seeping through. Firestorm battles his way into Multiplex's hideout and confronts Stanton Black, and at that moment, Firestorm is jumped by dozens of Multiplex duplicates. To be concluded. Dun-dun-dun. What'd you think, buddy? Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed some of the pacing of it. I feel like we didn't get to see that. And I could be wrong. I'm not going back and rereading these things. But, like, the whole thing with Professor Stein and watching him cook his little yeah. sad little microwave thing, like, oh. they give a whole page to that, you know? Yep. Like, that whole scene. And then the the scene with Jason in the car, like, that's kind of, I don't mean to say drawn out because I don't mean that as a negative, but it's it's these little moments are going to give him some space. And, Generally, this whole storyline has been like breathless, you know, in mm-hmm. its pacing. So I like that it got slowed down a little just for that little bit. And my favorite page is really that that Professor Stein page. I know. Uh, I know. <laughs> and I, I really like the way the machinery is drawn. It's kind of like loose but techy at the same time. It's it's really kind of neat. Like I, that middle panel, 
uh, where he's just the long shot of him walking and it's all the heavy shadows. Like, to me, that's, I don't know, it's really visually captivating, even though it's just a bunch of machinery and just that lone figure. But uh, That's I a really, nice call-out. Yeah, you're yeah, right. I really dig it. I really dig it. And uh, what is, do you know what the little bird is on top of the microwave? What is that supposed to mean? On top of the microwave? I don't know what I that don't is. know. It's, it's uh, like a little, I can't think of anything. It's like a little peep bird. Yeah. I don't know why you would have that, but whatever. But uh, I liked, I like that Ronnie wears a Superman t-shirt to bed. Yeah, That's and it's funny. a classic S-Shield. Yeah. I like the idea that some of these characters are merchandised in this universe. They're like <laughs> people go and they make Superman t-shirts. That's a fun idea. They're public figures. You know, I like that. Uh, and then the, the page with Ronnie and that same page, you see these two kitty cats just wandering around outside. They should get those kitty cats in because cats live longer and they stay inside. Wait, really? Hold on. Now I have to go to this page. <laughs> So, hold on here. 6.09 a.m. I promise I'll wake you up in an hour. You need some sleep, Ronnie. There's two kitty cats just sitting yeah, outside. Look at yeah. that. Let's get those cats inside. <laughs> you let them be free. You know, there's a whole thing about keeping cats captive in houses. They don't but live in... as long that way. All right. Ugh. Well, I thought there's a really cute bit at the beginning uh, where they're flying in, and Ronnie's mom is just terrified because they've been flying across the country, basically on a floating rock, using Ronnie's transmutation or Firestorm's transmutation powers. And so um, Joanne has been gripping Alvin's arm really hard in terror, and he makes a crack that it wouldn't have been so bad if she if she'd been gripping his prosthetic arm, which I thought was pretty funny to just come right out and say it. Now, if I had any criticism of this issue, and I don't really, but that the threat of General Eiling and Major Disaster, remember we've had like two issues, I think it was, or one issue, well, two issues of them dealing with Major Disaster and General Eiling. Well, that threat has just evaporated. I mean, they've returned to their lives. The characters that are under scrutiny, like Professor Stein, is not accosted by any government agents, anything. No mention of anything happens here. So I'm kind of hoping next issue we get some sort of resolution, like, you know, Major Force, who, who is now sort of in charge of that operation, says, you know, we're giving you guys a pass or something. But I just thought it was kind of weird how that whole just dropped. Um, now, in here, Stein, they ask, Stein, as they're all splitting up, Stein says he wants to investigate some theories on Multiplex, and they ask if he wants to elaborate. And he's like, no, not yet, not till I have more information. And it's like, Really, Professor Stein? After the whole thing we had with keeping secrets and trusting your friends, you're still not going to tell them what's going on? So I, I get the sense that uh, I don't know whether I'm reading more into that than I should, but I got the sense that Stein's not learning uh, to trust people yet, which is still you know kind of disappointing. I love Jason and Alvin's relationship in the car. You mentioned it. You're right. That scene gives a chance to breathe and everything. Now that's a real change, and I don't think I don't know if you've ever read the original run of Jason as Firestorm. No. Um, it's there's some horrible bits in there, and I don't mean horribly written, but uh, Alvin beats Jason regularly in that series. Uh, it's pretty horrible, and, and and of course part of it is to build up with Jason you know, standing up for himself, and his dad eventually goes on the road to redemption. But I mean, it's uh, really bad, and so seeing Jason and Alvin actually have a really strong relationship in this universe just warms my heart, makes me happier. Right? That's what I want rather read about, you know. I dig the idea that multiplex is uh, each multiplex is a different possibility. I want to say um, because I don't mention Alpha Flight enough. I want to say there was a character who was part of Beta Flight that had the same power actually, or or maybe he was stealing selves uh, pieces of himself from the future. Maybe that's what it was. But it was something. But uh, interesting, interesting power. I like that sort of. Again, there's some great lines there. You know, artifacts of the Schrodinger equation. That's freaking cool. I love that. And uh, we talked about Jerry just being so good with these characters and, as you said, letting it breathe and, and putting it in here. And just It gives you a chance to make these characters more real. 
they have real lives. You, you feel like you know them more. Did we learn a tremendous amount? No. But one little scene of Professor Stein microwaving rice and you suddenly feel for him. You make an emotional connection with that character that you didn't have before. And it's expertly done. And then, of course, you get the Ronnie and Jason thing where Ronnie insists on Jason going to help with Firestorm, which is great. That's a nice way to tell the readers at home that Jason will continue to be a vital part of the Firestorm team, even though he's not part of the Matrix, which is important to us because we've had, you know, what, 12 years now with Jason as part of the Firestorm. And it's important. He's an important character. We don't want to lose him. So I'm glad to hear that. And I really liked the joke at the end about you know, when, when Ronnie says to Multiplex, you and what army, and then he just ring out. It's very cool. A few art things. Uh, you know, on page two, there's a, it's a very simple little panel, nothing fancy about it, but Firestorm fissions into Professor Shrine and Ronnie. And I don't know what it is. I am such a fanboy for that. Anytime Firestorm fissions into Ronnie the Professor, it just, I, get, I love it. I, it get, it's like my favorite panel always, no matter how simply it's drawn. So there we go. Um, Ronnie's mom in that scene where he's, you know, in the bed trying to get some sleep. She's kind of hot. Just saying, you know, I think I got a thing for Joanne. And I like that Jason has finally figured out that what Monica is doing to his caffeinated drinks. And what I really like about it is he never says it in the issue. It's all in the art. You know, that's, that's a nice touch that Jerry did. He wrote it in such a way that he gave the artist, Eduardo Pansica, he gave him the job of revealing that Monica is poisoning Jason, and it was all in the art. Now, Jason does make a casual comment like, oh, by the way, or can I use your microscope, but he never comes out and says it. So it's all, that, that reveal is done strictly through the art, which I thought was very nice. And you called that. Good job. You called that. Actually, part. I did. I got that from someone else. Oh, did you? Um, oh, okay. I mean, yes, it was absolutely me. Now, when issue two came out, somebody on a website somewhere posted that going, what's going on with that? And I was like, oh. So I, I did you know, reiterate that theory, but clearly that is what's going on, which is sort of sad because Monica has been doing this to him, which made him really sick. And that's what they, why they took, why they took Jason out of the matrix. So really it wasn't anything to do with the Firestorm matrix. It sounds like it was this girl that did it and caused Jason not to be part of Firestorm anymore. Hmm. Oh, she's a horrible person. Oh, one more thing. I, there's, there's a great, splash page of Firestorm he, when, he, when he transforms and they're getting ready to go chase down Multiplex and they're, they're bursting out of Stein's lab and Stein's like basically saying uh, or he's Ronald first of all he calls him Ronald which I love and the exclamation points of course Ronald is such a frivolous display absolutely necessary and if you look at Firestorm's face he is so happy he is reveling in his powers he's reveling in the showmanship of being Firestorm he's having a blast and that's what I want to see on Firestorm I want to see Firestorm having fun with his powers we didn't get any super cool trans uh, transfiguration this issue or transmutation I'm sure we'll get something next issue but uh, seeing Firestorm having fun makes me very happy each and issue, it, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Each issue no. has a couple of really great Firestorm splashy images. Yeah, they've they've really clearly decided that was something to do in every single one because every book has had that kind of really big iconic moment of Firestorm doing something like that. Yep, and I say this every every month, but this is going to be a hell of a trade. It's just it's going to be great when they collect this thing because it's like you said, you know, it's, it, you get a, a roller coaster, just action, action, action. You get this issue where you get to breathe. You go back into the story. You know, they they reset Firestorm back to the classic configuration. It's going to be awesome. So it's going to, especially for people who don't read it in this format and just read it in, issue, in that issue form, it's going to be wonderful. So big, big, big thumbs up, folks. 
And of course, you know, you've got your Metamorpho story, your Sugar and Spike story, and your Metal Men story. I'll be honest, I just picked up my comics, so I haven't even had a chance to read these. Um, but you can, I can promise you the first one I'm going to read is Sugar and Spike. It was great. It was, was really it? good. And they bring in another character from Sugar and Spike. No way. From the history of Sugar and Spike, yes. Oh, cool. Yes. I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait. Oh, such a good, such a good story. Yeah, that that is a, that is a trade I'm going to flat out buy. Yeah, sugar and me spike too. trade, and I really hope they continue on. I never I, thought I'd say that because when I first heard it, I was like, "This is dumb. I don't want to see this." But it, I've really been enjoying it. Isn't it nice to admit you're wrong? I'm you I'm happy wrong. to be wrong. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I you know, I was like, I didn't think I wanted to see that, and now I'm like, wow, they took a whole different thing. It's really cool. I'm happy yes. with it. Keith Giffen's a master. You know? And the artwork, the artwork by yep. I forget the I forget her name now, but uh, is is terrific, really interesting. And like I said, I love all the nods and stuff. It's just, it's a book fully steeped in DC minutia, and uh, it, I think it fits the tone really well. Yeah, it's gonna be one of those ones. It's uh, I think I said this before too, but it'd be a trade that'll be fun to put in the hands of like a, a lapsed DC fan and say, read this, and they'll just be like, oh, this is the DC I love right here. So. Yeah, it's a it's a solid series. I, I would love to see this and Firestorm continue on. Oh, absolutely. Well, we haven't heard anything about where we'll see Firestorm next, so kind of sad. He's a TV star. Can't be can't be out for long. I agree. I agree. So and a cartoon star. That's true. That's true. He's everywhere. Um, <laughs> all right, folks. I think that's going to do it for this episode. Um, until next time, folks. You can find my friend, and I use the term loosely, Rob, over at AquamanShrine.net. You can find him on Facebook and Twitter under the same handles. If you'd like, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I think I read a statistic: sixty-seven percent of the Twitter handles in usage right now all belong to Rob Kelly. If you follow a Twitter feed, you have a two-thirds chance that it is mine. Yes. So feel free to uh, just. Send any messages to any Twitter handle. He'll get it. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, definitely check out Film Water Pod and, and things like that. that. Rob posts a lot of great stuff over there, too. Or, or maybe he has someone who does it because it's almost too clever to be him. Um, <laughs> I outsource you, it to a team of people. Exactly. You can find me uh, at Firestorm Fan, uh, mostly on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you, you've probably noticed if you're a Firestorm Fan fan, if that makes any sense. Uh, I'm sort of winding down on the website. We'll talk more about that uh, next month. But uh, right now, the place to find more Firestorm information is going to be on Facebook and Twitter under that same handle. And then, uh, I guess that's going to do it. Okay. So, Rob, anything you want to share with the folks at home? No, I think, I'm, I, I think I've shared enough for this episode. You're all tapped out. Alright, perfect. Out. Folks, until next time, fan the flame and ride the wave. Aquaman and Firestorm Yeah. Why? What would brick?